0: My guest on this episode is Freddie Bellhouse. Freddie and his partner, Nick Ashford, are co-founders of Ford House, a UK-based acquirer of small companies. In eight years since their founding, in 2014, they've done 25 deals and are beginning to consider more fund-like permanent capital structures for future acquisitions. I was fortunate enough to meet Freddie's partner, Nick, in New York City, and we hit it off immediately. He'll be a future guest on here pretty soon. Freddie and I talk about lessons learned going deal by deal, building expertise and in integration and organization building, and differences between the US and UK small private equity markets. At the start of episodes, we we're having brief two minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with the Q&A with August Felker from Oberly Risk Strategies. If I have a board of directors,
1: uh, when do I need to get directors and officers insurance? That's a great question. So many times when we're looking at, at and reviewing the insurance, a program of a target company, most times that target company does not have a board. It's a closely held private company and they probably don't have directors and officers insurance. So if you're going to have a board post-closing, many times those board members are going to want to make sure as sort of contingent on them joining the board, they're going to want to make sure you have a directors and officers insurance policy in place and it's it's really important you get that right at close. so there's no gaps in coverage. And all it really does, really simply is it protects the personal assets of officers at the company and directors in case they get sued for mis- maybe mismanagement or alleged mismanagement of the company. You know, in our experience, we don't see a lot of dNO claims in the small business world, but we have seen we have seen them. And probably the biggest value you get from buying a D&O insurance policy is like the just the legal costs alone of defending a claim are expensive. So it really sort of can cover you for all those legal costs that you would have. Um, And it's, it's again, really important and your board members are probably going to want it. The not so great news is that it's probably going to increase your insurance costs from pre-close to post-close by adding this policy that the business never had before. Many times it ranges from five thousand a year to to twenty thousand, maybe even more in premium. So usually if you have a board, you sort of might want to expect to just sort of factor in the fa- the you know the fact that you're gonna to have to pay for that DNO insurance policy. Awesome. Thanks, August.
0: To learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker and oberly risk.com and visit their website at oberly risk.com. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Hood and Strong, for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I think one interesting way to start would be hearing a little bit about some of the the deals that you've done so far. So, permanent capital is a big thing that you're thinking about right now. But up to this point, you've all done deal by deal. Can you walk through kind of some of the different deals that you've done and did they work, not work? What what structures did you find interesting, or helpful, or most aligned you with what you wanted to accomplish?
2: Yeah, so I mean, we started incredibly small. The the sort of first phase, which is this roll-up of something we call the business we now call Symphony, was was small to the point of the first business we bought turned over. I'll 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 use pound sterling numbers because that's obviously what we use. But it's two hundred thousand pounds. Had four staff, based in a very little office down in the southwest of London, and really, therefore, it's not the way we go about buying or went about buying those businesses was incredibly different to what we do now. So they don't really translate into the, into the slightly bigger businesses we buy now. Nonetheless, it's it's an interesting process. We finance those deals using, uh, using investors, but there's a, something in the UK called EIS, which is the Enterprise Investment Scheme. So anybody who qualifies, any investor who qualifies under that scheme, uh, invests, say, £100. Um, they immediately get their income tax back on that £100. So let's say for argument's sake, it's 30, 40%. And then if the deal fails or the, ultimately the investment fails, they get another £30, £40 back. So they're really risking 30 p in the pound on the investment. There was, as a result, there was some, in order for us to sort of squeeze into that regime, we had to do asset purchases, which really meant not buying the shares at all, but buying the business assets and the contracts out into new companies. So that was a, a pain, frankly. But it meant we could raise money very easily. These days, we're doing share purchases as you'd normally expect, and so things are a bit different. I think the, the early days of those deals were such that there was no management in place. We were doing everything ourselves. There's a it was a bit of a sort of reality check. Having been a, a, an M and A lawyer for a, for a big US firm, you see your clients transferring hundreds of millions of dollars to complete a deal with a, with a phone call. And when I rang rang my bank manager to make our first acquisition, I was told I had to queue up at the bank behind the pensions. Um, So I soon realised that we were starting right at the bottom, and we did the legals ourselves. I was a lawyer, recently exited lawyer, so I sort of still had fresh enough knowledge. And Nick was doing all of the all of the operational work in the business. So you know we were doing everything from painting walls, changing toilet seats, to to trying to raise money for, for future acquisitions. And so that phase lasted four or five years, and we, we raised chunks of small chunks of capital from investors, buying businesses turning over 500,000, 800,000 pounds in order to build what is now Symphony, which now has its own management team, is run uh, in a place called Crew in the UK, 150 staff doing its own thing. And we also use debt. So, what we've come to discover, one of the big differences between the UK and the US is that investment grade or or near investment grade debt is available to much smaller businesses in the UK than the US. So if you have a business cash flowing a million pounds or even less, potentially you have access to seven or 8% debt, you know, with good terms in some cases, even full bullets. So no amortization over four or five years. And so there is less equity needed here. I think before you can get to debt or at least less cash flow needed. So we moved to debt, you know, with sort of an EBITDA of about half a million, and then grew it from there. That was four or five years before we put management in place, and then we we started to look at the next phase, which was which was raising a fund.
0: So can you talk a little bit more about the UK differences? Because that's a that's one point we discussed earlier, especially with Nick, was how different or like some of the like, nuances within the two markets. You. If that debt one is kind of interesting, does the UK government just view small business lending as a as a prime directive for what they're looking to accomplish in their country?
2: No, so it's, it's it's not really government led. I know you guys have SBA loans and various mechanisms to to get debt at, at a much smaller level. We don't, as far as I know, and, and someone, somebody, some UK listener may tell me differently, but as far as I know, there's nothing specific there from the government that benefits us. They do have equity-based schemes. So the EIS schemes that I, that I talked about, etc. Here's my theory on it. The ax- UK is smaller. And so if you take a $5 million cash-flowing business in the US, there are just a lot of them. And so a, a buyer has the pick of those that are available to buy at any one time. It's not exceptional. A 5000000 million cash-flowing Business in the UK is relatively rare. There are lots of them, but in the context of the total number of businesses in the UK, it's tiny, absolutely tiny. And so there is more competition for these sort of, if not scaled, scaling businesses of 5 million, et cetera. And so people are prepared to pay a lot more for them. So the first difference that we've noticed is the multiples here are much higher. You can feasibly pay, depending on, you know, it's obviously very sector dependent, but a, a pretty boring recurring revenue asset like 2 million cash flowing business here might could cost you only up to 10 times. In the US, I understand, at least for, for fairly boring businesses that are growing, it could be half that. And so there's an interesting equity or valuation difference. But at 2 million, we could expect to borrow three or four times that EBITDA from a debt provider to, to part finance that deal. And so the equity check may be similar. What I'm incredibly interested in at the moment is how we can arbitrage the difference which is to say, is there there an opportunity to have a UK trading platform which raises UK debt to acquire American bolt-ons or additional businesses at multiples that are much more attractive than here, but using the availability of debt at a lower multiple and lower cash flow, and then selling on to a UK or European business that's prepared to pay UK or European multiples. I don't know how feasible that is, but it's just something we've been thinking about actually since our trip to America, given, given some of the multiples we've been hearing about.
0: Yeah. Have you heard of other, like I imagine like the UK family offices might be pretty, there might be a couple out there that are thinking along those same lines. Have you met anyone who has kind of explored that path more?
2: So I don't know. I, I obviously know lots of businesses that are transatlantic, so, you know, mid-Atlantic who operate on both sides not least from you know, our clients at my law firm. And I know that a lot of mid-market uh, private equity funds will look to expand their UK business either onto the continent or, or over to America. I don't know if the justification or the reason for doing so is, is because of this arbitrage or actually whether it's really just to access bigger markets. You know, you often find UK private equity-backed businesses heading over to Scandinavia. For some reason, it seems to be a sort of natural extension I mean, you you find the expansion everywhere. I know from 1st hand experience as a lawyer that buying businesses in France, Germany, et cetera, can be very difficult given their union rules and various other sort of work left, worker rules that can frustrate deals for months on end. We are backed by family officers, uh, and certainly both of those family offices or primary family offices are, are involved both sides of the Atlantic. I just don't know yet whether it's because of this arbitrage or, or whether they just find opportunities you know, in both places, really.
0: Are there any other countries in Europe that have similarly low multiples as the US?
2: I don't, I'm no pro uh, on this stuff. My feeling is that if you, the further east you go, the cheaper the multiples will get. As a, one of our team members marching is Polish-English and has sort of done some research into Poland in particular, which is a, a country that's growing very quickly in European terms, at least. And he's, he's fairly confident that, that actually there's, a, there's great opportunity there. Our issue is that we just, you know, we've got plenty to be getting on with here, and I think we'd be stretching ourselves a little thin to be going elsewhere. But, you know, we've been we've been told we've had a couple of big meetings in New York when when Nick met you. that you know, guys suggesting that really Scandinavia should be looked at as well as a natural extension to what we do. We have we just haven't looked into it yet.
0: So walk through like the last two or three deals that are kind of coinciding with your thoughts around raising additional capital versus going deal by deal like it did has something changed in the like the latest couple of deals where things have gotten harder or you you're seeing more opportunity or what's what started to change recently
2: yeah so we so we raised a, a fund two or three years ago with with some absolutely fantastic investors who as i say family office based who have been incredibly supportive who are also Long-term orientated for the most part. However, we structured the fund to be a sort of fairly typical two and twenty private equity fund style thing. And as a result, when we've bought businesses and brought in really top quality management, you know, we've it's it's been with the incentive structuring has been with that in mind. You know, there is a sort of three to five year period where we work really hard to create value and and then hope to realise that value what we've come to realize over the last year or two with these businesses going well. And, you know, we think we've got great management on both sides, people who we believe can grow these businesses enormously and have done is that, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of hard work that goes into the first two years. There's almost a sort of a bit of a hockey stick. You invest a bit of your, a bit of your purchase EBITDA into into that management, into consolidating the platform to enable them to take on these smaller bolt-on businesses. And once you've done the really hard work and you're starting to see that EBITDA growth and before you've hit that sort of compounding curve, it gets kicked off to the next person who um, who looks to, to do their own thing. And whilst the returns can be fantastic, you are somewhat selling, having done the hard work before you start to sort of slowly walk up that curve of, of compounding benefits um, and compounding cash flow, which can give you absolutely astronomical uh, equity returns over time. And so really our view is, we really don't want to sell our businesses. We work really hard on them in areas that we knew nothing about and now know lots about. And it would be a real shame to exit the industry just to have to go and learn something afresh elsewhere and find another opportunity. So so our, our thinking around this is we think this, the area of the market we're in works. We think the businesses we buy are the right businesses for what we want to do, but let's hold on to them for 15 years, not four in order to really give some some turbo charge to uh, equity returns. Yeah, that's
0: a common theme I've heard from a couple of searchers recently or search CEOs is that they're they by the time you know years three and four come around, they feel like they're finally starting to get in the groove and understanding their business a lot more and although le- there's more levers available to them to help grow their business. And some of those productive years can be that five, six, seven, eight, you know, in a business or beyond. And if you can last to that point and build a, some sort of structure organization that allows you to get there, there's some really impressive compounding that can happen. But part of that is like building executive teams too. And I'm curious if taking one of your companies as a case study, talking about that hockey stick, that J curve of investment, give, like walk through an example of a company where that executive team maybe didn't exist, or there was piece, only pieces of it uh, at that point. And how did you build out that executive function?
2: Yeah, so we, I think we've got very lucky in in both in, in the, the two businesses in the current firm. We've got incredibly lucky. Basically, you know, existing teams are great. In in one case, the existing team is the, is, is, the, is is our team, and in the other case, there've been a few changes. In, in the case of the business where things were changed, we've brought in people we would consider to be you know materially overpowered for the size of business we we originally bought. I think in that case, we've got quite lucky. We brought in a finance director. Who was an, an investment director at ECI? ECI being one of the biggest mid-market firms in the UK. Who himself was involved in a in an IT roll-up and has seen it all before. This was a business that recently sold to. Can't remember the name actually. So it's a Goldman Sachs backed asset, you know, for 17 times multiple. And so he then brought in through that prior prior experience one of the executive team of that business, uh, who's now our CEO. And so we have two guys who've who've done it and there's no greater reassurance than bringing in guys who've done and exceeded what you're hoping to do over the next few years. And for them, you know, it's an opportunity to be at the very top table, to, to, to be in charge and to make the decisions and also to to look through the process of, you know, ultimately the business being bought by a much bigger backer who has lots lots of extra zeros to spend and and to grow, you know exponentially from there so so it's sort of i think we represent a sort of a, a route into a sort of a 15-year process of private equity acquisition that can be exciting obviously very lucrative and so i think partly or mainly out of luck we've really managed to get get some people in that are that are really exceptional equally on the other side the team have have just been fantastic since completion we have there's no, there's absolutely no thought in our mind that there should be any change. You know, everybody stepped up to the plate and, and is really growing the business and and relishing the the prospect of growing by by many multiples. So, I don't think there's any right answer for 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 bringing management in. All I would say is, if you're buying a platform business that turns over say six million pounds and it has been in existence for 25 years, one could argue that perhaps the people who've taken it from A to B. Aren't the right people to take it to 25, 30, 40 million. But that isn't for sure. So you just have to take each case as it comes, I think.
0: How do you evaluate that? How do you figure out if this person or this team is ready for that degree of growth or not?
2: It's 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 probably an unpopular answer here, but a lot of it comes down to gut. So spending time with with people over and, and and actually trusting people in in the initial phase to to see how it goes. And then you discover whether it works or not. You know, in our case, we haven't had to, we haven't had to make changes. And so far as the people who were there needed changing, you know, it's just not something we've had to do. Um, everyone's been great. In the case of the IT business, it was very much a case of, of of owners choosing to step back over time. So, you know, we haven't been in a position where we have sat there and thought, "Oh my gosh, we've got to, we've got to revamp this management team; and we're in serious trouble." And part of that is spending as much time as possible with people before you buy something really getting a feel for for how people work before you before you commit capital and you know these businesses are small enough so you you if you spend enough time in an office of a smaller business you really get to feel the culture and and everything else and and understand to what extent you think it has capacity to grow without needing major overhaul. I have no doubt that in our future we will uh, stumble across some terrible management teams and having thought they were great but um so far we've been very lucky (laughs) that's good to
0: hear that's good there was a train of thought we didn't finish um a lot of the growth all the compounding growth i've noticed has been in after years four and five have you noticed that too in some of the companies and owners you've gotten to know or your time as a lawyer like seeing companies sell right at right at the point where they're about to hit their growth spurt like what what kinds of things have you seen and noticed
2: yeah. I mean, uh, time and time again, so particularly SJ and our first firm, my first firm, what we actually saw was we'd often see a business time and time again. It'd often be the third or fourth time we'd sold a business through various private equity clients. And you know it would be 10x larger than it was at the beginning. And you, and you just wonder, well, why did the first guy sell? Now, obviously, they have a, an incentive structure and a, and a fund structure that means that they are obligated to sell and that's and they've found the type of investors who want a four or five-year return. And that's fine. I mean, we know how successful some of these guys have been. But there have been enough cases now of guys, and we see it now in the private equity market with the, with the huge rise in secondary transactions where a private equity fund will buy an asset, run it for five years, and then sell it to the next fund uh, for value so that they can keep hold of it. It's a sector they understand by virtue of having been in it. It's a business they understand inside out, a management team they trust. Why would you, why would you offload it if you think that's room to go? So even the, the short term guys are finding mechanisms to hold onto assets for longer. And there are stories of, I forget the asset, but 3i, I think it was 3i, which is one of our big P funds in the UK, bought an asset for I'm going to make up numbers here, but the gist is right. 30, 40 million. By the end of the four-year process, it was worth somewhere in the region of 120, 130. But they just made the strange decision to hold on to it for a long time. And I was told that the assets now were somewhere around 8 billion. And so if you think about the initial capital outlay, let's assume the first deal was leveraged, You know, even 50-50, that 15 million of uh, equity is now somewhat larger. And it would have been very easy to sell for 135. They would have done very well.
0: Yeah, that's, that's the other side of that is, could you actually hold that business all the way to $8 billion? And it, it takes a, a really iron gut to not sell at any of those points along that journey.
2: That's right. I, th- I can't remember when, years and years ago, that Gates, I think when Microsoft offered to buy Facebook for something like a $1 billion or $500 million or something. And I remember at the time thinking, gosh, you should take that and walk away. And of course the rest is history so uh, i completely agree um it's very hard to hold it for that long
0: Yeah, i was, I was thinking about that story too yeah offer an offer for a billion dollars i would yeah i would i would sign me up that sounds great <laughs> i
2: don't know if i, I, I could... suspect that's why you and me aren't some mark zuckerberg <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: so f- one so another funny story i i remember chatting with this private equity partner like traditional private equity firm in, in california And not only did he, this company he just acquired, not only did he know that he was eventually going to sell, but he already knew and had diligence with the next private equity firm in like three or four years who was going to buy it from him. So it was, it's just such a scripted process, which is impressive. I've heard
2: a lot of stories of that. In fact, a very big business I've been told about recently that it already, as you say, it has a seller. In fact, it has an internal seller at an agreed valuation, as far as I understand. It's 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 a strange world that I'm not I'm not really privy to, but but certainly actually even now we are you know our businesses are already being courted by the bigger guys, such that they are desperate, as in all cases to preempt a, a, some kind of auction process. And what we're at least starting to find is there is almost it's nothing's official, nothing's written down. There's no price, but there is a if you get around here, you know we're willing to take it off your hands for X pretty quickly, and so you sort of. You sort of have a feeling that there's an exit there waiting when you when, if you do it right. You know, it's becoming a lot. The, the industry is small, particularly in the UK. There are only so many businesses growing fast. If you're doing well, everybody knows about you pretty quickly. And you're you know we we're getting in one of our businesses in particular. The management team are getting pestered daily. RLPs are getting pestered daily, and we're getting pestered daily, often from the same people who just basically want to be told when things are ready and they're going to just come in and get it. Now, the challenge for us, assuming nothing goes wrong and everything goes well, touching wood, and God knows where we'll be in a year's time in the state of the economy, but you have to make a very difficult decision as to whether you go to auction or whether you just say, do you know what, let's give it to these guys. We think the number's good. Get rid of it quickly. It's not a process we've had to go through yet because we held on to our first investment. So excited to see uh, to what extent we capitulate.
0: Are there any differences in transaction costs between the U.S. and the U.K.? Like, if you went to an auction process with broker, banker, whoever, what percentage of the deal would just go to transaction costs in the U.K.?
2: It's a good question. In the U.K., usually we have a sort of two to three percent EV fee. So two to three percent of enterprise value, and then a ratchet. So above a certain multiple, will be that. That will increase on the incremental amount. To incentivize sort of outperformance, that's often expensive. Legal fees are very expensive. You can half-ass, for lack of a better term, um, legal fees. It's always a mistake, in my experience. Great lawyers are worth their weight in gold. And so, you know, we would assume that you would spend almost as much on lawyers as you would on on, on a on a sort of corporate finance outfit. And then there's a bunch of costs that go on, on top of that. You know, the marketing of the document, everything else, tax advice. You know, it really does add up fast and it's expensive. We find time and time again uh, small business sellers trying to trying to go as cheap as possible on the sale and they and, and it never ever pays. I mean, I can honestly say that at, often they'll try and do it without a broker or a corporate finance guy. that's okay potentially. although when it's the first time they've done M&A, usually it's not usually they need someone in their corner who understands. but when they use a lawyer that is not a specialist corporate financier or at least uh, sorry a, a specialist corporate lawyer, or doesn't have specific experience within the structuring of a, of a, of a, of a sort of acquisition in this way. So the sort of the peculiarities of of sweat equity and various other things. Things take five times longer. Their legal fees end up being three times higher than we promised. Everything is challenged with this market. And so I think, I think the biggest lesson there is spend the money. But I don't know what the US costs are. You'll have a better feeling for that uh, than me. Um, obviously, you've got DD due diligence across the board you can do as little or as much of that as you like like i can run from five thousand to five hundred in thousand in our experience
0: what kind of offers have you received for businesses and what makes some more attractive than others is it just price or is there some other element that you care about or would find interesting
2: i think price is obviously foremost when you get the price is the other one are you being paid on completion is there some kind of earn out or deferred amount you know as a as a as an investment fund, we sort of have a have a blanket no to any deferment or earn out anyway so that we can return capital to, to LPs. But the only other thing that we care – well, you care about the business itself. You want to make sure that the business or at least the people in the business looks after. The only other bit there is time, time to do the deal. You know, Trusted acquirers of businesses are worth their weight in gold because you know they're just going to get on with it. They're not going to sweat the small stuff and they're going to do a deal. You know, some some acquirers in the UK have a reputation for taking forever, challenging every tiny little issue with a business. And, and, you know, God knows that every business has its issues. And so I think outside of price, you're looking for someone who's done it all before, understands the nature of business and is willing to get a deal done quickly, subject to sort of the red flag. But there being no big red flags from their due diligence providers and their finance guys often this, the business cycle dictates how long people take. You know, when things are very hot, you know, businesses can be bought in a couple of weeks. I think when things cool down, people take their time a bit more.
0: So on the flip side, how, how intriguing are you as an option for folks wanting to sell their businesses when, you're, when compared to some of the private equity firms that are hounding your own team on a, on a daily basis?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting one. So what we've always tried to do is be almost anti-private equity. All of our offer documents, all of our our sort of marketing and everything else is, is generally positioned to not use private equity jargon, to keep things really simple. You know, often the way you represent offers is, it's not on multiples of EBITDA or anything else. It's just on, here's what you'll get then, then, then. And really getting to know sellers over time. You know, one of our sort of heuristics, internal heuristics is that we will go across the country for a 30-minute coffee in person because well, a seller wants to try, needs to trust you. And you want to see the whites of the eyeballs that were, you know, you really want to to understand who they are, what they're doing, if they're running a good business. And so much of our time is taken up with, with meeting, meeting people, kissing lots of frogs and being personal, you know, really personal. Our, our communications are personal phone calls. We're not spraying and praying like most are. And I think that, I think that's, we we tend to get into businesses who have often said a blanket no to private equity because we take that really really personal approach we don't have a team of of originators who just are blasting everywhere we it's it is just me nick march and james who who will go and see people and you know we're the decision makers as well so we can speak truthfully the other angle we have of course is that we're not lp backed we're not backed by institutional lps we're backed by family offices there is a sort of softening, a softened process for timelines and various other things as a result. And we can really talk to, to being a bit more committed to, to legacy in the long term than, than I think the average mid market private equity fund can. I know I read a recent article about uh, from a lady in the US. I think she's a broker who was saying exactly the same thing, which was private equity, mid market private equity funds trying to come down and buy businesses are having a, ter- a terrible time because they're trying to apply. The same sort of outreach process to, you know, owner-managed businesses, and they do to sort of auction, auctioned or, or broker-led mid-market businesses, and it's a disaster. You know, people need to trust you, so that's really how we built all of our systems and processes to, to hopefully earn the earn the respect and trust of, of the guys that we want to buy businesses from, and obviously look after those businesses after they've sold them.
0: Yeah, certainly. So talk about some of the structure you're hoping to build now for more of a longer-term focus. What's that looking like in your head?
2: Yeah, we've we've still got a decision or two to make there. But, you know, one of the things we've been doing for the last few months is chatting to everybody we can about sort of PCVs and and permanent structures. A few, I think, have been on, on your podcast. And so where we're sort of landing is what we want to create is, a, is as much alignment between investor and us as possible. We think that's going to be possible because hopefully we'll, you know, what that ultimately can come down to is, is, is are you co-investing alongside your investors and do you have similar liquidity to your investors? As soon as those things are misaligned, behaviors vary very heavily and, and sort of increasingly over time, there's sort of a divergence. Because we've got this fund in place and we hope see fingers crossed, Make a return from it. That is a liquidity event that allows us to potentially take a bit of a longer term view on illiquidity alongside our investors to benefit from that compounding. And so as a result, what we're trying to build, the structure we're trying to build is, is as simple as possible. We've dealt with far too much complexity in the current fund. And so the aim is to sort of take the reverse position, which is a company, a hold co, however it's, whatever structure it is, whether it's in the UK or elsewhere one class of share to the maximum extent possible held both by investor uh, and by us buying businesses that we know how to buy underneath that hold co and not having a, a time horizon so importantly we won't now over the years of experience go into uh, another structure where where anybody else has decisions other than us so um, really what we're looking for is an investor who appreciates the simplicity complete alignment of interest in terms of share classes uh, and liquidity, and is willing to, to stick it out for the benefit of compounding. And so really, it's as simple as that. If we want to see liquidity, our investors need to see it as well. And as a result, we'll hopefully take you know the kind of decisions that will benefit both of us on an equal basis. We have seen... that I can see divergence becoming a very big issue with, with some PCVs. Essentially, you have managements are increasingly desperate for liquidity over time and who are looking for ways to get it without having to pay out large sums to investors and to them, which sort of compromises um, the sort of compounding nature of that cash flow. And so we'll see. We'll see if we get there. Hopefully it'll be nice and simple, but God knows lawyers and and tax guys seem to have an ability to to complicate things over time.
1: Have
0: you thought about building in ways of Like having secondary sales or liquidity or dividends to managers or investors over time, because I imagine a management team like they can't go sixty years with not a dime coming to them. Like there needs to be some value eventually for for the the value that they've created.
2: Yeah. So what it ensures though, where you have alignment, is that where you want to see liquidity, your investors at least have the option of that liquidity as well. So. There are a couple of things. One is, you know, we've often been advised, you know, our big meeting in New York, which was the reason we were there, and Nick met you, was with a, a big private equity guy who, you know, whose who's, who's big comment was, look, the sooner you can return the original invested capital to investors, the less they care about timelines." kind of thing. You know? And so there is an argument to say, well, okay, let's get these businesses cash flowing to X. Let's spend the next year or two either dividending out that cash flow to get people you know near you know as close as possible to to being sort of out from a committed perspective or you could do that quickly with some kind of recapitalization and share buyback whatever it is and then you can proceed to benefit from the compounding going forward because investors don't care at that point they just want to see how far the you know they've left their winnings in only and want to see how far they can go there's a lot to be said for that and that's something we're sort of thinking thinking about what we've also seen which is really interesting is Giving management an ability to borrow against the share value over time, so you can release some of the value on a tax-efficient basis, but still be committed uh, in the business with the sort of rump of that value, and you'd only you'd allow very small percentages of value at the time. So I think there are going to be ways, but, but really, what we're trying, we're really keen to ensure, is that if we're cash flowing ten, we really need some liquidity. That okay, we may own ten percent of the business, so we. We can take one and the investors can take nine, but at no point are we going to take one and the investors take nothing. Or at least they're going to have optionality to take that nine. What that incentivizes over time is us building such a huge pipeline of cash flow over time that that, uh, it's not an issue. Otherwise, I've just seen it all before. I've seen the divergence of interest over time and things can get pretty nasty pretty quickly in my experience. Do you
0: have any anonymous examples of that divergence being particularly... Unhelpful to that compounding process. Like what tends to go wrong?
2: Yeah, it's it's usually what's interesting is it's not the two scenarios that people think about are always the blowaway success and the disaster, but actually in most cases it's the really mediocre performance. It's the kind of you're not hitting sort of your base value, your base model. You're you're kind of just doing all right. So the investors have got their no capital in and it's not doing that well. You're not getting to the kind of cash flow numbers where you're confident you can the management are getting their return so you're, you're four years in management aren't really seeing any capital ap- appreciation or at least not enough and thinking gosh if i got to do this for another 15 years i could go and do something else the investors are thinking gosh i'm not really getting a great return on this money or at least i haven't got liquidity for the return that there is and that's where things go wrong so that's why it's so important to have an investor base who can see who are in for the long term and committed to it both morally and legally for management to understand that it needs to go well for them to get paid. So quite often you'll have a scenario where management are looking to get paid in that very mediocre scenario when investors haven't received as much as they should. So you're into things like hurdle rates and all that kind of stuff we like to avoid. That is a scenario where management has no choice but to double down and to make this thing work in order for themselves to get paid rather than rely on management fee or something else to get fat when investors aren't seeing a return. And we see that quite a lot. So you know we to give you an example in this current fund we have our management fee is just enough to cover our costs there's no profit making there is no attempt to to get fat from income so that we're maximally aligned and i think that's probably one of the one of the biggest things to make sure we 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 keep keep right when we go forward you know we're not we're not if we wanted to manage assets and take fees we'd try and raise 300 million we wouldn't raise 30 or 40 million which is the plan to sort of maximize return on equity
0: yeah certainly you can You could do well at the three hundred level, with with management fees. What do you think that that mediocre performance is? That a a function of? I imagine it's a combination of a whole bunch of stuff, but just poor companies acquired, not like not the bad, not a team managers, bad incentives. Like, what's kind of like the the mixture of all of those different things? Maybe more that I've forgotten too.
2: Yeah. So, well, it, I guess it varies depending on what you're buying, what sector you're in, all the rest of it. For us, we're we're in roll-ups. So we're buying lots of businesses within a single sector. The risks, the biggest risks are around buying poor businesses. So we don't worry too much about valuations. We tend to get businesses at good prices. Our, our concern is that there is a sort of culture or or set of systems and processes that is really, really bad news in the business you're buying. And those are often the things that are very hard to discover before you buy them. And so where, where you have a platform and it's bolt-ons that have gone well, there's good culture, there's, you know, things are fitting well together, you can have one bad purchase that is almost like a sort of cancer in the business and, and it, can, it can make everybody else unhappy over time. So often, often mediocre performance is buying four good businesses and a couple of bad ones, and the bad ones are just dragging everything down culturally and from a processes and systems perspective but really the biggest single risk for us in what we do is is poor integration so integration means it's it's partly culture it is processes and systems and it's also incentives all that is packed into a process of integration and with integration it's the hardest it's 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 the single hardest thing to get right it takes time it takes grit and determination and i think when people get into the roll-up game at whatever size they can make their excel spreadsheets look fantastic you know we're going to buy lots of businesses at five times and then we're going to sell them at 10 it's going to be amazing what what the excel spreadsheet can't tell you is the the absolute horror show that will exist in the two years post acquisition where every change is resisted everything that could go wrong goes wrong and often at the same time uh, which is not something you model and the sort of hard work that it takes to get through the other side and so where you see poor results you often see what we call a bag of bits Disparate businesses, not really working together, separate cultures, no one responsible for revenue growth in any one place because you're buying small businesses with the owner leaving and, uh, and a business that can't be sold. And it's, it's just, you know, these things often don't implode, right? They, they just slowly get worse and it's, it becomes exponentially harder over time to grow them. And so really that's just, just, a, just a slight tangent. You know, our team is majority operationally based or integration based and, and our biggest value add to our businesses is working on integrations in a very formulaic process driven way having done sort of 25 of them now we, we kind of have a have an instinct for what to avoid and what not to and what and what to do quickly i think that's probably our biggest value add and our biggest de-risk uh, when it comes to sort of hopefully outperforming mediocre businesses
0: do you you don't have within the 25 deals you've done there's not like one business that's dominated them all right there's not like the the clear number one company that you've acquired is a handful of similar, similarly sized companies or is there one that you kind of view as your cornerstone company?
2: So, the, you know, most of those acquisitions were our were our first roll-up, which was, they were very small. So, you no, know, there was no one business there that was bigger than, that was much bigger than the others. And, you know, that's hard work. You know, not having a dominant business with, with systems and processes in place, is very difficult because you have to create everything from scratch. In the case of our IT business, we bought a great platform business that, you know, with a few tweaks here and there, was able to take on other businesses. And in our accounting business, they've got a great setup there that's, that is perfectly placed, particularly from a cultural perspective, to to take in other businesses. So there's no one business, although having said that, Zen Zero or MSP is, is easily our biggest business at the moment. But, you know, we've we've put the most capital into it. So, no, I mean, there's no real answer there, sadly, although we would like, in most cases, the platform to be the biggest. What what tends to happen is if you buy a platform at 10 and you ultimately buy a bolt-on at 12, uh, two years later, it can be a very painful process to to change processes and systems between them rather than having the platform that be the biggest and everything to be subsumed into the systems that exist there. Most of the bolt-ons we buy are significantly smaller than the platform and therefore are not well-equipped to... Uh, or at least don't have their their sort of operation in a place where it can sort of challenge the mothership, as it were. It tends to just take on what the mothership has. So we'll see, and we'll see which one gets biggest. That's, I guess, that's an exciting thing to find out in the next two or three years. I wouldn't like to bet.
0: <laughs> so integration-wise, do you, do you think it's easier to integrate the smaller deal or the similarly sized deal?
2: I think I think what's more important there is the it's easier to integrate bigger, but well. It's easier to integrate tiny businesses and large businesses um, from a tiny perspective. It's because you can manually handle you know, every single bit easily, and it doesn't take long. In uh, large businesses, you've got usually great management teams who aren't owner-managed, uh, second-line management. There is a, a structure in place which allows you to share in the pain and hopefully there's an experience there which which sort of uh, makes things a bit easier the the, the toughest ones are the bigger owner managed businesses that don't necessarily have the structure or the management structure underneath the owner manager that's when it's hard work you can't do things manually but equally there's no one there to to help you so um that's when thankfully i can step out of the way and nick has to do all the nick and james have to do all the hard work i can just go and look for another business to buy <laughs> huh
0: perfect that's a that's a great setup i do find permanent capital vehicles really interesting and it's fun to have seen how many have come out of the us and are some are taking you know similar approaches as others and some have come up with some really interesting interesting terms what are some of the example pcvs that you've really enjoyed studying or just Anonymous models that you find p- particularly interesting and you think could apply well to what you want to do?
2: The obvious sort of big ones, you know, your constellations and all those guys that, you know, have obviously done incredibly well are, are fascinating reading and obviously hugely exciting to sort of try and replicate. You know, our stable mates, uh, Westerly Group, I think you've had Ross on, on the podcast. You know, he, we have a, a shared backer. You know, speaking to those guys who've done just an enormous amount of thinking in the space that far beyond anything we've done to date it has been incredibly illuminating. And obviously Ross and Westerly have backed a number of guys doing, doing their own things within specific sectors. And, you know, across all of those and others that we've, that we've spoken to, you know, things vary heavily. There is a huge difference in how people are incentivizing management, encouraging LPs into these structures. There is clearly no right way to do it. Nobody's settled on the right way. And and as you sort of intimated to earlier, the, the biggest issue seems to be around liquidity. You know, we're trying to solve that by not needing it, frankly. And if we can not need it, then we don't have to worry about it. That's sort of the goal we're taking over the next couple of years. So, you know, we see guys with sweat equity classes, incentive shares, payouts based on MOIC returns over time, We see abilities to, you know, ability to borrow against equity, ability to co-invest at par, but later on. So, if co-investing at par when you when you enter the hold co is the price of the share, the nominal value of the share, even once value has been accrued, can management invest at the original value later to to, to see upside. There are tax issues with that generally, but, but but it's something we've seen. And so there are all these sort of imaginative ways of trying to to artificially create liquidity when when there naturally isn't any, and I'm sure most of them will work in one way or another. But, but I think in our case, we're just trying to keep it simple. Hopefully, you know we have come across a few. and I'm sure you've spoken to them too. I won't say names just in case they want anything public. But they have kept things incredibly simple, and they go out to market to raise money on a on a on a on a value basis. So they look at the equity value and they raise raise on that basis. There is some liquidity at that point as well. But otherwise, they're totally aligned with investors on every, in every other way. And that works too. The issue you've got there is if you're going into a threshold co, quite often, you don't have value in the business. And so you don't own value in the business to be able to give away. You know There needs to be something at the beginning that allows you to accrue capital value. So there's no easy answer. We're still scratching around for it. But I think our, our preference for simplicity will mean we, we go down the sort of yeah, a very sort of basic route in that respect.
0: Yeah, I hope so. It'll be fun to watch. First closing question for you What college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted?
2: So I thought about this. I think for me, the, the most valuable thing you could teach an 18 year old um, is probably around personal finances, um, around some of the basic investment things we all know as a result of being involved in the sector that applies to, to, your, to you individually. That is just isn't taught by parents or by or by schools. Debt: the importance of not being in debt. The importance of compounding what little capital you have over time. The, the incredible opportunity that you as an eighteen year old have to uh, to build value over the next sixty years that us near forty year olds don't have, and so don't waste time. So I think you know the basics of that. The basis of capital leveraging yourself. And I guess all things that point towards sort of not trying to get rich quick, but trying to build value over the long term, you know, I think it applies very much to what we do in our, in our work worlds, but, but equally, you know, it took me a very long time to not try and uh, find the easy solution to get rich. It took me sort of 20 years to realize that. And I think if I can impart some of that uh, painful learning to 18 to year olds, I think that will probably be the most valuable use of my time.
0: <laughs> That's a great one. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? Perhaps it's the get rich quick versus take a while to do it.
2: That's certainly one. For me, actually, it's a bit of a weird one, but it's it's the utility of belief itself. So, you know, in, in the case of religion, I, I grew up in that went to a school that was very religious. I sort of rejected it and threw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of its utility. I think one of the things I've learned over the years, I get slightly older, and particularly with children, is the belief itself, whether it's religion or something else, it has a, it can have an enormous amount of utility. It doesn't even have to be true. I think ideology, some are good, some are bad, but it really allows uh, people to be far more powerful in their search for what they're after, whether whether it's good or bad. And so, I think my the biggest belief I've changed is is potentially laughing at or, or disregarding other people's beliefs that I think are silly, when in reality they have a huge amount of utility or or a, or a set of heuristics that enable that person to better themselves. So I think that's probably. Probably my biggest biggest mind changer.
0: That's a really good one. I haven't heard it articulated that way before, but that makes a lot of sense. What's the best business you've ever seen?
2: I mean, this is the sore one for me because it's 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 essentially zero incremental cost to serve software businesses of various types. Particularly I've seen in 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 very regulated sectors, perhaps in training, for example. So Let's take an example of a, of a company that's, that operates in, uh, in a highly reg- regulated sector, water, something like that. There are requirements for their staff to pass various tests on an annual basis. Those tests are only going to get sort of more onerous over time or there are going to be more of them required by government regulation. And if you are the incumbent provider of those sort of software tests that are usually quite easy to pass... And are not a large part of a of a client's P and L, and therefore they have zero incentive to go and look for someone else. You're going to get incremental business over time from those clients. You're not going to lose them, and there is zero cost to, there is zero cost to serve the marginal user. They are money printing machines. They are now also very very competitive and very expensive as a result. You know, and we've we've built up our expertise generally in people businesses and and improving them or tech enabling them over time. And so it's probably not our domain, but. I get um, very jealous of people who own those types of business that grow nice and quickly, have defensible regulatory moats, and are and are sort of margin machines. So, uh, one day we'll get hold of one, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, I certainly hope so. Thanks so much for for sharing a little bit. It was great to great to meet Nick in New York, and I hope that you guys are both coming back to the US at some point soon, and we can can meet for dinner or, or something else. That'd be that'd be really fun.
2: Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me on, and uh, yeah, it was great to speak. Thank you for listening.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood and Strong, and Overly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgmancom slash podcast.